2: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones.
3: On the night bridging August 13th and 14th, 1956, a UFO encounter involving both radar and eyewitnesses took place. This incident occurred in a place you are already familiar with, a U.S.-controlled British air base on the North Sea coast of England called RAF Bentwaters, 24 years before the Rendlesham Forest incident. The Condon Committee, formed in the aftermath of the 1966 Michigan UFO sightings, released a report that included summaries of several difficult-to-explain cases. This 1956 encounter, labeled case number two in the report, and known informally as Lake and Heath bentwaters featured a letter written in the late 1960s and sent to the committee by a watch supervisor at an air traffic control radar site on the night in question. The Condon Report says that, quote, "...one of the interesting aspects of this case is the remarkable accuracy of the account of the witness as given in the letter reproduced above." which was apparently written from memory 12 years after the incident. With that recommendation, this is what happened that clear night as excerpted from that letter read by Martin Sweeney. It begins with a call from another radar site.
4: The Radar operator asked me if we had any targets on our scopes traveling 4,000 miles per hour. They said they had watched a target on their scopes proceed from a point thirty or forty miles east to a point forty miles west. The target passed directly over the RAF station. He said the tower reported seeing it go by, and it just appeared to be a blurry light. C forty seven flying over the base at five thousand feet altitude also reported seeing it as blurred light. It passed under his aircraft. There was very little or no traffic or targets on the scopes, as I recall. However, one controller noticed a stationary
3: target on the scopes about 20-25 miles southwest. The target should not have been picked up on the scopes unless it was moving. But there it was. They called to another air traffic control unit, which confirmed that they too had the target on their scopes. As we watched,
4: stationary targets started moving at a speed of 400 to 600 miles per hour in a north-northeast direction until it had reached a point 20 miles north-northwest. Now, there's no slow start or build-up to the speed. It was constant from the second it started to move until it stopped. The target made several changes in location, always in a straight line, always at about 600 miles per hour, and always from a standing or stationary point to his next stop at constant speed. No buildup in speed at all. These changes in location varied from eight miles to 20 miles in length. No set
3: pattern at any time. This continued for a while. After 30 minutes or so, the US Air Force called the RAF and they sent up an aircraft to investigate. Shortly after, we told the
4: intercept aircraft he was one half-mile from the UFO, and it was 12 o'clock from his position. He said, Roger, I've got my guns locked on him. Then he paused and said, where'd he go? Do you still have him? We replied, Roger, it appears he's got right behind you, but he's still there. There were now two targets, one behind the other, same speed, very close, but two separate, distinct targets. The first movement by the UFO was so swift, I missed it entirely. It was seen by the other controllers. However, the fact that it had occurred was confirmed by the pilot of the Interceptor. The pilot of the Interceptor told us he would try to shake the UFO and would try again. He tried everything. He climbed, dived, circled. The UFO acted like it was glued right behind him, always the same distance.
3: Very close. The pilot aware that the plane was running low on fuel, returned to base. A second plane was sent to intercept the object, but turned back with a mechanical failure. Target made a couple more short moves,
4: then left our radar coverage in a northerly direction. Speed still at about 600 miles per hour. We lost target outbound to the north at 50 to 60 miles, which is normal if aircraft or target is at an altitude below 5,000
3: feet. The Condon Report's final word on this encounter reads In conclusion, although conventional or natural explanations certainly cannot be ruled out, the probability of such seems low in this case, and the probability that at least one genuine UFO was involved appears to be fairly high. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 8, Radically Different and Richer Alternatives. The Condon Report, released in 1968, seems to be the turning point for Alan Hynek. Hynek had worked as a consultant for the Air Force's investigations into UFO sightings for 20 years. And this report said that continuing this work would be of no scientific or defense value. The subsequent closing of Project Blue Book meant that he was no longer beholden to the Air Force in any way.
5: He was critical of the Air Force's investigation by the time he left. Now, he was there for about 20 years. In the first part of his contract, he was convinced there was nothing to it.
3: UFO historian Jan Aldrich.
5: But as things went along, he changed his mind. So in your primary advisor, changes their mind, and you don't pay attention to that, that's rather unusual. Besides that, he was like the institutional memory for Project Blue Book, because people
6: came and went.
3: This is Hynek from 1967, while the Condon Committee was doing its work, but before it released its report. He gives us analysis of the leading theories about the explanation for UFO sightings.
6: Let's put it this way. There are, say, four large categories in which explanations fall. One, of course, the one that's been used for so long, it's all nonsense. There's still a slight probability that that might turn out to be the case, but I don't think so. Second is that it's all, there are secret weapons being tested by this government or that government. But that seems unlikely to me simply because it's hard to keep a secret for 20 years, and one doesn't test secret devices in 70 countries. Here is, of course, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, ETI. Um, this is a popular one because it, it's amazing how the human race wants devoutly to believe, and here I use the word belief in its proper sense, wants to believe in possible help from outside. Only they desperately want to. They're looking for a scientific father image of the sky. Uh, and, of course, astronomers will go along with the idea that there is life very likely life elsewhere it would be cosmically provincial to think today that there isn't. The problem is of course getting here and communicating, that's a totally different situation. And then the fourth possibility is that uh, if we're dealing with uh, heretofore unknown but perfectly natural, normal, physical phenomenon, and you say, well, wait, how can this be? On the other hand, just put yourself back a hundred years. Suppose somebody, when you're when we crossing the planes and a covered wagon, somebody had globally began, begun to talk about uh, nuclear energy. And in those days, we didn't even know, they didn't even know that the atom had a nucleus, let alone that you could get energy out of it. It was in a totally incomprehensible thing to people at that time. Well, how do we know? Just because it's 1967, that by the year 2567, we won't know things that will make our knowledge today look childish.
3: This fourth possibility that there are frontiers of knowledge which the current state of established science wasn't ready to deal with, had intrigued Heineck since his youth. Depending on your viewpoint, it either provides an explanation for why he was willing to theorize outside the strict boundaries of more narrow thinkers, or why he wasn't quite as rigorous in his scientific thought as he should have been. You see, Heineck had a keen interest in modes of thinking well outside the scientific norm. And it began when he was young.
2: He said that while other boys were saving up their money to buy motorcycles, he saved up $100, which in those days was a huge amount of money, and spent it on a book, a book of occult knowledge called The Secret Teachings of All Ages, which was one of the biggest occult tomes of the 1920s. My name is Jason Calabito. I am an author and a researcher who has studied UFOs, the unexplained, and all manner of weird things for almost 20 years. He wanted to know all of the hidden secrets of the world, all of the mystical things that the occult groups, the secret societies, the forbidden knowledge, and he used that to create an intellectual world in which there were more things than merely the material. This
3: was the beginning of an interest in the esoteric and paranormal by the man who would become the most influential voice on UFO Matters, author Mark O'Connell.
5: When he got into college, he really started reading a lot of the works of Rudolf Steiner, who was an esoteric thinker who, boy, I don't even know where to start with Steiner. But he became fascinated with mystics.
3: Today, Rudolf Steiner is probably best known for founding Steiner Waldorf Schools, which provide a progressive education stressing, quote, universal human values, educational pluralism, and meaningful teaching and learning opportunities. But Steiner was a wide-ranging thinker, and his works were not confined to the realm of education.
7: Well, Rudolf Steiner was an Austrian sort of polymath. Uh, he was born in the sort of late 19th century and he died in 1925. For the first sort of half of his career, he was more or less the typical German intellectual, German-speaking, you know, language intellectual. And he became well known as a scholar of the German poet Goethe. Well, my name is Gary Lachman. Uh, I'm a writer about... Uh, We could say the history of the Western esoteric tradition, and that's a bit of a mouthful, but esoteric means inner, and it's sort of about the inner teaching of kind of the um, mainstream religious teachings, and also about the inner world, or inner being. And uh, that includes different histories of different uh, movements and biographies, people of Rudolf Steiner and Carl Jung and Alistair Crowley. And ages ago, in a previous life, I, I, I used to be a rock musician, back in the late 70s. By rock
3: musician, Gary means he was the basis for Blondie. In his childhood, Steiner experienced visions and instances of seeing ghosts or spirits or things like that.
7: And in his 40s, he sort of came out of the closet about that. And um, this is when he began this kind of second career as a spiritual teacher, leader of a kind of spiritual movement that he called Anthroposophy. But anthro means man in Greek, and sophia, sophia is wisdom. So it's sort of the wisdom of man. And it is basically a kind of spiritual teaching about this spiritual existence that we have alongside the physical one that we have.
3: Steiner's conception of anthroposophy was connected to the work he did on the poet Goethe's scientific writings, in which he described a method he devised to use his imagination to study nature. For instance the way that plants grow.
7: He was able to train his imagination to be able to, in his way, when he was observing a plant, to be able to see it through all the processes of its growth. So from when it went from a seed to just, you know, a sprout, and then actually growing, then bearing fruit and all that. And Goethe was convinced that he had somehow was able to see this kind of eternal plant that was behind the actual physical one that was moving through time. And Steiner picked up on this when he was doing this work on Goethe's scientific writings. And he combined this kind of methodology that Goethe had developed, this kind of way of disciplining his imagination to see to see this, with this kind of inherent, innate kind of psychic ability he had.
3: Steiner became a very popular teacher of this type of, in quotes, science.
7: Spiritual science was this way that he had a whole methodology of following these, these practices that he got from Goethe, And he really ran with it. So it went from into seeing into past lives and into the history of the cosmos. And I mean, it's quite grandiose. Um, And he had a grandiose vision of human evolution and the evolution of the cosmos and all that. But fundamentally, it was a way of training your imagination to be able to see this kind of, what do you want to say it? Some phenomenon, not only in the time and and place that you see it now, but in its full kind of being and connection to the rest of things around it and all that. While in college, Heineck became
3: interested in Steiner and other spiritual and esoteric writers. Again, Mark O'Connell.
5: During his college days, he was spending a lot of long, lonely nights at the Yerkes Observatory in, uh, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, looking at stars, looking basically into the depths of eternity through this telescope at Yerkes Observatory. And in the meantime, he's reading the writings of these esoteric thinkers who are talking about, uh, well, Steiner liked to talk about something he called the supersensible realm. Some of us can perceive it now and then, and we can actually train ourselves to be able to experience these, these other dimensions of reality. This was definitely something that was always part of Heineck's thinking, and I think it had a lot to do with why he was willing to consider the reality of the UFO phenomenon.
3: As the Condon Committee's work got underway, Heinek met another UFO researcher who had a similar interest in the occult and paranormal, a man named Jacques Vallee. Vallee is the model for the French scientist in the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He is a longtime UFO researcher who in addition to UFOs also researched other paranormal subjects, including visions of the Virgin Mary and the practice of remote viewing. He eventually asserted that UFOs weren't extraterrestrial, but, in fact, represent a, quote, previously unrecognized phenomena, and that their ability, quote, to manipulate space and time suggests radically different and richer alternatives. But that
2: came later. Jason Colavito. In 1966, J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée were traveling to Colorado in order to participate in the Condon committee investigation into UFOs sponsored by the University of Colorado and the Air Force. The two of them were there to provide their testimony and their evidence uh, to the committee as they were looking for the scientific explanation for UFOs. And it was increasingly obvious that the committee was going to determine that there was nothing much to the UFO phenomenon in terms of anything extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial, but that conclusion didn't sit very well with either Heinick or Valet. And on the way back from Colorado, Heinek confessed to Valet for the first time that he was not entirely the materialist scientist that he pretended to be in public. But he told Valet that he actually had these mystical, occult ideas That he was deeply interested in things like Hermeticism. And while as a scientist he followed the scientific method and proposed scientific ways of exploring UFOs, he had always that sort of mystical idea in the background that they could be something more than material science could explain.
3: Depending on your viewpoint, this is either an unorthodox tool that makes him a more insightful thinker about strange phenomena or an indication that Hynek wasn't as strict with his scientific reasoning as he needed to be given the subject matter. Regardless, as the Defense Department officially shut down their investigation into the UFO question, Hynek was the public face of Flying Saucer investigation, and he had a new message. After the break.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
3: We've been looking at Hynek's career through the framework of the archetypal story of the hero's journey. The end of Project Blue Book marks his emergence back into the normal world with a new message about UFOs.
5: His first book was The UFO Experience, and that came out, I believe, in 1972, somewhere right around there. And yeah, over all these years of studying UFOs, Heinic had always been thinking in terms of how do we classify these events? Because for all their similarities, there are also some major differences in these different events that keep on being reported. So how can we categorize those? How can we organize those to try to make some sense of them? And his first attempt at that was pretty simple. He broke UFO sightings down into three simple categories. One was daylight disks, and that was when people reported seeing what they believed to be a solid object in in broad daylight during the day, in the sky. The second was nocturnal meandering lights. That's pretty obvious. And then the third category was visual-slash-radar sightings.
3: This type of sighting was the most intriguing to Hynek, because the radar reading would corroborate the eyewitness account. But this wasn't the final form for Heinick's classification scheme.
5: As time went on, he further refined them and came up with his close encounter system.
3: Not least because of the Steven Spielberg movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Heinick's close encounter system is the best-known method for classifying UFO sightings.
5: Close encounters, by definition, had to be something that occurred within about 500 yards of the witness, okay? So that's what separates these new categories from the original three.
3: In Hynek's system, there were three kinds of close encounters.
5: So a close encounter, the first kind, involves a visual contact, just a sighting of an unusual object in the sky within about 500 yards. Heineck felt that at that distance, a witness could make out the size, the shape, the contours, the outline of whatever it was they were looking at.
3: A close encounter of the second kind added the element that the UFO had to have some type of physical effect on its surroundings or on the observer. The classic example is of the car stalling or the radio going out, or possibly vegetation is burned as in the Lonnie Zamora case. But of course, the most famous is the Close Encounter of the Third Kind.
5: Close Encounter of the Third Kind really ups the ante because now it includes occupants or beings or creatures that are associated with the UFO as part of the event. It doesn't necessarily mean that the witness interacts with those creatures, but the creatures are present. The creatures are reported in proximity to the UFO, if not inside the UFO. So those were the three categories. A couple other categories have been added by other people since then. I usually disregard those because those are just basically like escalating levels of human alien contact. And that just takes the whole thing in a completely different direction than Heineck ever intended.
3: The term close encounters of the fourth kind has been used as a designation for alien abduction. After that, it gets even more bizarre. A former physician and transcendental meditation teacher and current ufologist named Stephen Greer promotes the concept of close encounters of the fifth kind. Author of They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers, Sarah Skulls. He has made a name for himself with the specific kind of contact with aliens called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which is essentially... A kind of contact with aliens and UFOs that you as a human being on Earth try to initiate, like you kind of send your intention and receptiveness to that experience out into the universe somehow, and then the phenomenon is supposed to sense that and, and appear to you. So this is getting well beyond witnessing lights in the sky or physical craft or what have you. But back to Hynek's scale.
5: Heineck was was always very uncomfortable with close encounters of the third kind because anytime you start talking about occupants of the UFO, you start talking about creatures, it just raises all sorts of questions that are much harder to deal with than anything in a close encounter of the first or second kind.
3: But they are the most dramatic and, of course, the most famous. Heinick famously appeared in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind as, well, basically himself. But in the real world, it was the less dramatic cases that had his attention.
5: He really, really enjoyed the Close Encounters of the Second Kind cases because he felt they had the most scientific value because they left behind physical evidence. There was some sort of physical effect left on our environment from this object. And like I said, those could be health issues with the the witness. It could be all sorts of different things.
3: But while accounts of sightings involving UFO occupants troubled Hynek, this was not an indication that his mind was closing to ideas out of the scientific mainstream, to put it mildly. In fact, he continued to be intrigued by new paranormal claims, including those of Robert Monroe who was an advocate for the reality of -of out-of-body experiences.
5: Well, uh, an out-of-body experience is a state of being, a state of awareness, a state of action, uh, separate and apart from the physical body. Uh, About
4: 25% of the population throughout the world, I guess, uh,
5: has this spontaneously take place that they're aware of. Uh, At least once in their lifetime.
3: And it wasn't just Monroe.
5: Hynek became interested in the work of a guy named Ted Sirios, who claimed to be able to take psychic photos with his camera so he could, like, concentrate on prehistoric times and somehow, click, click, his camera would take a picture of a dinosaur.
3: Sirios used a small paper tube that he called a gizmo which he said concentrated his thoughts to create the images. Later, he was exposed as a fraud. He would slip something, probably a picture, into the tube before the photo was snapped. This was what created the image, not his psychic powers.
5: Heineck was interested in a lot of these things, which drove his friends nuts because they felt like it detracted from his credibility, and I'm sure it did. But to me, I took it as a sign that Hynek was simply interested in exploring different states of consciousness that he then might be able to use to make sense of the UFO experience. And now we're getting into the 70s and the 80s. He's, you know, he's been dealing with and thinking about the UFO phenomenon for decades at this point. He always thought that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was possible, but he was never fully committed to that.
3: The extraterrestrial hypothesis is, as it sounds, the theory that UFOs are vehicles from outer space. It is the most popular theory, but not the only one.
5: He saw it as only one possible explanation for the UFO phenomenon. He was willing to look into psychic things. He was willing to consider that UFOs may be in part a psychic phenomenon. Not that they were creations of our minds, but that whatever was manifesting itself in the UFO was doing it directly into our minds, not necessarily through our eyes or our ears, but directly into our minds. In that sense, Heineck thought they might be psychic occurrences.
3: This is Heineck in 1968.
6: It could very well be that the whole UFO phenomenon is a signal, an index, of another kind of property of the natural universe that we as yet have not recognized. And beyond that, if I go any farther, it'll be a pure science fiction. Jason Colavito.
2: And he and Jacques Vallée over the succeeding decade came to a sort of rough consensus that flying saucers may not be physical vehicles at all, that they might, in fact, be psychic phenomenon, phenomenon. He uh, was particularly interested in the idea that UFOs were related to poltergeists. And he said several times in the 1970s that UFOs had a very close connection to the poltergeist phenomenon. And if we could understand what made for poltergeists, made these ghosts, we would also understand what made flying saucers. And between the two of them, The idea sort of came together that flying saucers were coming from another dimension, that they were a semi-supernatural phenomenon, and that we couldn't entirely understand them through science itself, but through a mystical means of knowledge. And the idea emerged from that, that if you could fully understand UFOs, that by exploring flying saucers, would see a new, better, grander science behind the facade of the material world towards something that's more psychic, more spiritual even, something that's approached almost the divine. In
3: 1975, Heineck and Valet co co-authored a book titled The Edge of Reality, a progress report on unidentified flying objects, which begins, quote, The UFO phenomenon calls upon us to extend our imaginations as we have never done before. It continues, quote, In short, to approach boldly the edge of our accepted reality, and by mentally battering at these forbidding boundaries, perhaps open up entirely new vistas.
5: He also entertained the possibility that these things were interdimensional in nature, that they were visiting us from another dimension and he called these metaterrestrials, which I always like that term, metaterrestrial instead of extraterrestrial. So yeah, Heineck really became enamored with a lot of these kind of different approaches to reality. But as I said, I think my read on that was that he was simply trying to consider different states of consciousness and how they might play into the UFO phenomenon, maybe even create the UFO phenomenon.
3: In The Edge of Reality, Heineck and Valet write, quote, the solution may lie in the parapsychological realm, the means of getting information, I mean. This is a startling statement from the man who was considered the leading scientist studying UFOs. If science isn't adequate to address the question of flying saucers, what are we left with? Spiritualism? Metaphysics? is it surprising that the Condon Committee didn't see further study as being scientifically useful? And this is what makes Hynek such an interesting character in the UFO story. He seems to embody the tension between people who want to use science to get to the bottom of UFO sightings and people who feel that science is too insular or too limited to properly address the issue.
5: The fact that he really was a hardcore scientist. He only went where the facts led him. He would never go one step beyond what the facts, what the data would tell him. And yet at the same time, he's fascinated by people like Robert Monroe, who have out-of-body experiences. He's fascinated by people like Ted Sirios, who claim to be able to make psychic photos. So there's this dichotomy between Heinek the scientist and Heineck the sort of wannabe mystic, or at least a guy who's at least interested in at least dipping his toe into those waters. And all of this, I think, is in the hopes that it can just lead him to greater understanding of reality of the universe, I suppose.
3: So where does this leave us as we look at the folklore developing around UFOs? Well, the one sustained effort undertaken during the middle of the 20th century to try to determine the truth behind UFO sightings, Project Blue Book, ended with the Condon Committee's conclusion, which was seconded by the National Academies of Science, that there was no indication that these things that people saw in the sky were of extraterrestrial origin and that further study would have no scientific value. At the same time, you have Project Blue Book's consulting scientist undergoing a change in perspective during his two decades investigating encounters, from dismissive skeptic to believer that something is going on this perspective is complicated by Hynek's keen interest in the paranormal and belief that stepping outside the bounds of established science is likely necessary to find answers. And it is this lack of resolution that creates the space in which the folklore could flourish and expand. With the end of the official government inquiry into UFOs, the narrative switches to other actors in the story, to civilian researchers, popular culture, and government disinformation agents. Next time on Strange Arrivals.
2: Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at grimandmild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.